Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station Podcast, a show about learning the Rust programming language. This is Interview 2, Part 2, with Rafe Levine. Last time, we spent a good bit talking about Rafe's background and some of what got him going with working on the Xi Editor. This time, we'll pick up from where we left off and keep going. Here are some of the things he has in mind for the editor going forward, some of his philosophy about it in general, and some of where we'd like to see the Rust community go, what it's doing well, where it can keep growing. Without further ado, right back into it. One of the things you were saying a minute ago that sort of struck me is the utility and listeners of the show will know that this is actually what drew me to Rust in the first place, in part because of that interest in it for writing tools, the ability to write a cross-platform tool or library that gives you that kind of low-level performance and safety and that you can then turn around and compile for Mac or Windows or Linux and be able to use it and integrate it with anything that at least for now, anything that has a C foreign function interface, which is everything, or going forward in the future, if and when Rust stabilizes its ABI, being able to integrate with it more directly. But there's a lot of power there to enable the kind of thing that you're building. And I think seeing that as one one slot where Rust has a really, really good future, I think is helpful. We don't have to say Rust is the tool for every job to say it might be the tool for that job. And I'm at the point where if if anyone wants to write a native extension for Python, for example, I'm looking at them saying, can you take a week and get yourself up to speed with Rust first? Because you're going to be way happier doing the little bit of extra work to get yourself a Rust FFI and being safe and not having to deal with those pain points anymore. And I think there's a really great future for Rust in many areas, but I think that's definitely one of them. Absolutely. And I think that Rust having such a lightweight runtime, that's really one of its strengths that you can mix and match that runtime with other, you know, it, it can be a guest in just about anybody else's home. Right. And that, that would be very difficult in most, you know, garbage collected runtimes. Yeah. So, you know, in Xi, like, uh, I'm not really making much use of that, that the, uh, uh, you know, text is relatively low bandwidth. So mm-hmm. you can pipe it across an RPC channel and the overhead of doing that is going to be like less than 10% of whatever you're doing. So, you know, I kind of said, okay, I'm going to separate this out into these small modules because, you know, I think we're good at building those small small modules with very cl- uh, cleanly defined interfaces. Mm-hmm. But if you had to do deeper integration, like let's say I was not doing text, but I was doing something like video processing. Right. So piping that across, you know, uh, <laughs> in you JSON, know, a, a pipe. In J- <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, not a super good idea. You would really need, uh, you know, much higher bandwidth communication. So if you were doing that, you could easily take that Rust code and put it in the same process as your front end and just run it as threads. Um, it would coexist in a very nice way. Right. And uh, so I think, yeah, absolutely. That is one of the areas where Rust has a tremendous amount of potential is being able to do extensions, being able to do uh, plugins, you know, in these other kind of heavier weight systems and having them coexist in a very clean way. And I think that's an area where I'd like to see investment in better tools. Because, yeah. you know, if you're writing a Python front, a Python extension, absolutely, you can do that. But you end up having to write a lot of tedious, repetitive code by hand of yeah. the C, you know, export, whatever. And, you know, you kind of want to be able to think about that at a higher level and say, I'm writing a method. I've got an object. And, right. you know, then on the Rust side, you know, it's not exactly the same with the inheritance, but you still want to have some, you know, you, you don't want to be thinking of like, what is the actual C, <laughs> ABI, you know, right. done. 
And I think there's, I think there's a potential to, to scale that up. I think there's a potential to, to make that kind of tying these things together uh, lower friction. Yeah. There was a project that I believe Yehuda Katz and Jeffrey Chan did for Ruby doing that to provide a lot of the those basic tools so that you don't have to think about them. And I think one of the areas that would be a great place for the community to invest then is to say, can we do that for Python and make it low friction to write bindings? Can we do that for something up and coming like Elixir so that you can bind to anything on the Erlang VM and not have to think about it for a C extension, things like that. Yeah, I'd love to see more. If only I had time, I would write them myself. Yeah. But but part of, you know, the design choices in Zai is that uh, I don't have to wait for that. Right. This idea of RPC and JSON, like, you know, like when there's a plugin Mm -hmm. architecture, you know, I really want to open that up to any language, any way that you want to build that. Uh, And and, you know, like if you're doing analysis of some language you're programming and usually those tools are in that language, Mm -hmm. if you're doing TypeScript, you want to bind that to the TypeScript. You don't want to have to write all this Rust code to deal with, uh, you know, that language. So I think there's like different paths to get to to the same end goal. And, uh, yeah, I want to explore all of them. And, you know, Zai is like this kind of statement of like, let's try these specific design choices and see how it goes. And then if that turns out to work well, then those are patterns that I think that can be adopted, you know, by other projects. Yeah. What inspired you to work on of all things, a text editor. Obviously, you've got some of this interest in type and everything from the stuff you've done in the last decade with web fonts and with Android and all of that. But I mean, it's a pretty specific itch to scratch and it's a pretty large itch to try to scratch. So what what made you actually give this a go? Well, it really is uh, scratching an itch that, you know, I've gone, I've tried Emacs, I've tried VI, I use Sublime Text as my main editor these days. I've tried other ones and none of them quite work. And this is where I live my professional life. Right. Uh, I mean, they work, but they, they don't feel like exactly what I want. Yeah. So, you know, I think that was part of it. Uh, another major part of what led me here is that I really got interested in the data structures, the computer science, mm-hmm. and how do you scale? How do you represent large operations, you know, large files doing operations efficiently on these? And so, you know, I was kind of playing with that in Rust. I, you know, I, I often build my prototypes. I try ideas out. I find, you know, and then I can like evaluate the performance in a, you know, like if you I also prototype in Python, but you don't really get a sense <laughs> of how fast no. it runs. And, uh, you know, it kind of grew out of that. that mm. It's like, you can you can build a text editor. And I wanted, you know, it really is, you know, a lot of my best work is just exploration of ideas. Yeah. And, you know, I felt like this is something where there is a niche. There isn't something that exactly meets these needs. And it really is a way to learn about, you know, how do you build these things? How do you build GUIs? Right. Something I've been interested in a long time. So, yeah, it's a little crazy. And uh <laughs> Uh, but it's a lot of fun. So we've talked a lot about some of the the highlights of using Rust, but we all know that every every programming language has its its pain points, its weak spots, etc. What are some of the things that have been more on the frustrating side, or places where you think Rust, whether specifically as a language or in the tooling or in the community, can grow and do better? What are some of the things we can learn, maybe from other languages? It, those kinds of considerations. Oh, absolutely. Well, I touched on, you know, the uh, language bindings Mm -hmm. and how difficult it is to do that. And I think, you know, it depends on what kind of system you're building. And uh, it's certainly, uh, you know, when you're integrating it into something that has 
a lot of API surface you need to call, that's going to be difficult, right? Um, you know, until those tools grow. Compilation speed is something else that concerns me. And that, again, in Xi, I'm doing this thing where they're small components. The editor, the editor core is a relatively small project. It's, you know, even as it grows, it's, I'm hoping that it's only like a couple of tens of thousands of lines of code. So compilation is not a serious problem, but you do build bigger systems. And yeah. if there was a million line of code system, which, you know, I, I do deal with, then that would be extremely painful yeah. just due to the compilation speed. And I know that the Rust core team is really focused on that and doing some, doing some good work, but they have a lot of, uh, a lot of room to grow there. Yeah. You know, when I'm evangelizing Rust in, in different uh, ways, the learning curve is an issue. Getting new developers, like, you know, I've played with a few other languages, you know, like Go and Swift, for example, are both languages where you can kind of just start coding and yeah. not really have this feeling of friction. And in Rust, a lot of people, even, you know, very experienced programmers who, who've been doing like Haskell and, you know, C++ for years, you know, have this initial experience that's like, you know, you, you want to do something like, you know, you open a file and so you've got a string that's, you know, from your command line argument and you're passing it into the file open method. And all of a sudden you have to think about, you know, is that a slice? Do I need to copy it? You know, and like, right. this is crazy that in, you know, every other programming language on the planet, it's just a string, you right? Know, you get a string, you know, argv1 <laughs> and you pass that to file open and you don't have to think about it anymore. And as I say, my experience is, you know, when you get over that learning curve, that it doesn't slow you down very much. But, you know, I don't know what's the answer to that. Uh, you know, whether it's just resources for learning, you know, kind of handholding, you know, kind of mentoring. Uh, you know, I think I try to do some of that. Uh, and I think the community does a pretty good job overall. But I think we have to acknowledge that there's more of a need for that kind of thing yeah. uh, than in other languages where you can just kind of pick up, you know, and start using. I don't know. I mean, that I, I guess that for me, that's it. And, you know, just a lot of it also is just maturity and getting more adoption, you know, that you, people have a huge investment in existing languages and you don't just drop it and switch to something else, even if it is better, which for a lot of the use cases that I'm interested in, you know, I, I think Rust is better, but you don't, you don't throw away. No, you don't throw away code. a million line of million lines of code. You do not. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think one of the big challenges there is seeing we all have that blind spot that comes from the experience and remembering what were the pain points, what were the things that didn't make sense, what were the things that were hard. And I heard a, a very helpful interview, which I'll link in the show notes for listeners with Yehuda Katz, talking both about Rust and especially about some of the work on Ember. And one of the points he made that I thought was very helpful is – if you're talking to a beginner and they say, I'm having this problem, the correct response shouldn't be, you're wrong. <laughs> it shouldn't even be, you're doing it wrong. It should be, huh, tell me more. Because if they're having that problem, there's a reason that they thought this is the way to ap approach this or to accomplish this or to solve this problem that I'm having. And a lot of times they may not have the right solution in mind, but they're giving you a very loud, clear signal that what your teaching material is telling them isn't giving them everything they need to know to solve that problem. And and that gives you information about where to go. And I, I mean, the amount of stuff out there on handling strings already is a pretty clear signal that yeah. this is a hard, it's a hard thing in Rust. And I understand the Rust programming model well enough to know why it's a hard thing, but I do think it's a place where both in teaching and maybe in API design, we want to keep thinking about ways to make it easier. You know, if you're yeah. writing a, a library that handles these things, that handles strings, can you can you write it in a way that 
mostly doesn't care or makes the user a lot less frustrated. And those are hard problems, but yeah, yeah, that, that, and yeah, and that's actually, that's actually really interesting. You know, I've certainly, you know, I deal with strings a lot and, you know, I have this rope <laughs> data structure. So I've been mm-hmm. doing kind of API design there. And it is interesting because you can wrap these data structures in uh, reference counts mm-hmm. and you might take in the case of, you know, in the case of the ropes, you know, I feel like not using reference counts is not really a viable option. You have to have some way of, for right. example, passing it from, you know, of sharing the data structures between threads. And so mm-hmm. like there's, you can't, you can't do just plain ownership for that. You have to do something else. But if you're just doing like string manipulation, the kind of, you know, Perl style, whatever, that would be kind of one way to do it. Of just saying, we're not going to have, you know, kind of force this choice between uh, an owned thing and a reference. We're just pass around the reference counter and, and let that do the memory management in a way for you. Unfortunately, in Rust, it makes it conceptually easier. But if you do if you do that in a you know systematic way, you end up having to write dot clone a lot. Right. So maybe that's a wish for a Rust 2.0, you know, not, I mean, I want to see Rust 1, you know, really stabilize and and get adoption of Rust 1. I'm not trying to, you know, say, okay, (laughs) we need to do 2.0 already, but just, you know, for the people who are thinking about it, Mm -hmm. that having some kind of auto clone, just to make that particular pattern of like, let's make easy mode for you for API design so that you can just say reference count. And then you don't have to think, am I doing move? Am I doing a clone? Am I, am I, uh, you know, am I just passing a reference? Am I doing a borrow? Yeah. That all three of those are just, you know, are are just a a reference count. And if you look at Swift, that's basically what they've done. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Both in the language design and in, in the design of the API based, you know, basic things like strings. And I, I think that that could happen in Rust without, you know, radically destroying the language. I mean, there are other things that, you know, you could think of doing. Uh, but even with Rust 1, you can do a lot to make your API designs easier. You can use the as ref trait as part of the signature of a method. And that allows you to pass in either a reference or, a, you know, a borrowed reference or an own object. And it will kind of do the conversion for you automatically. Mm-hmm. And that's also even more powerful in conjunction with the cow. Right. The copy on right. Yeah, the copy on right enum. And that allows you to make the decision dynamically at runtime. Do you want it to be borrowed or do you want it to be owned? And if you write your method that it takes an ASREF rather than taking a slice, then you can just pass any of those things in and it'll do Hmm. the conversions for you automatically. So, yeah, so a little bit of attention and a little bit of care, uh, you know, into the design of these things can can make life easier. But it requires a lot of knowledge. You know, how do you use these traits? Like if you look as kind of the classic example is the signature of HashMap, which has all of the stuff about, (laughs) you know, uh, partial EQ and, you know, borrow and what's the difference between borrow and Azra. And, you know, the stuff makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when you dig into it, you, you see why they made these choices. But if you're designing a data structure, if you're designing mm-hmm. an API, there is definitely a lot of, uh, you know, depth that you have to plumb in order to make these decisions well. And I think that's where, as if you're, if you're someone thinking about writing a program in Rust that just uses these how well designed the library is, is going to make a big difference. But if you're thinking about writing a library, that's a place where you want to make sure you understand those trade-offs well, because if you don't, you're going to just add a lot of unnecessary pain to the user of your library. And that's tough. But I think also the flip side of that is as the people writing the abstractions, 
that's kind of what you're signing up for. And yeah. so it it's on you to make sure that you choose your abstraction well and not you in the Rafe Levine specifically, but you in the, hey, library authors, think about these things and think about ways as a way of making things easier for beginners that you can make those quote unquote ergonomics better, even if that means more work for the library author, because again, that's kind of what you're signing up for there. And that's hard, but it's necessary. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really encouraged because I see the community stepping up. I mean, mm -hmm. you're seeing a real pr proliferation of new libraries, data structures, in some cases, just filling out the basics. And that takes time. But, you know, in, in the Rust community, I really do see that happening. So, yeah. And it's easy to forget that C's been here for 45 years. There's, yeah. it, We're not going to catch up to that quickly. And the other thing that I've thought regularly, but I think is actually a good thing, is Rust is never going to be the monolith that replaces C and C++ all by itself. And it doesn't need to. You can have Rust doing one thing and Swift doing something else and Go doing something else and have some some different spots on the stack and grab the tool that's right for the job, grab the tool that fits the problem best without feeling like you need one. If you want performance, this is your choice. And right. I think that's a good thing going. Yeah. Any other things you want to talk about before we wrap up? I we, think I think we covered quite a bit here. We did. Uh, as I say, uh, I'm really excited about RustConf, uh, Portland, Oregon, September 10th. Uh, look forward to meeting a lot of the community yeah. in person. Rafe's giving a talk on Xi Editor, so you should be there. <laughs> and other than that, you know, thanks very much for having me on. I really enjoyed uh, uh, talking with you and uh, sharing with the community. Likewise. Thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Talking with Rafe was great, and I am really excited about the Xi Editor and seeing where it goes. I am looking forward to seeing his talk at RustConf, though I probably won't be there myself. The talks will all be recorded, and that should be really great. Next time, we'll jump back in with some further discussion of some of these smart pointers and reference counted types and ways that we might use them. It was a great segue between the last regular episode and the next regular episode with Rafe's discussion of them. Thanks very much to Chris Palmer, Daniel Collin, Rafe Levine, and Vesa Kailavirta for sponsoring the show. You can see a full list of sponsors in the show notes. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can set up recurring contributions at patreon.com slash neurostation or give a one-off at any number of other services linked from the show page. You can also just get in touch with me directly if you're interested in sponsoring. You can find links to those services as well as to everything Rafe and I talked about today at neurostation.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter at neurostation or follow me there at Chris Kreicho. If you enjoyed the episode, please help others find it. Share it with a friend, share about it on social media, write and review it in a podcast app directory from a podcast app you use. That would be awesome. Also, love to hear from you on social media. You can also respond in the thread for the episode on the Rust user forum at users.rustlang.org or on Reddit. And of course, you can always shoot me an email at hello at neurostation.com. Until next time, happy coding. <laughs>